Welcome to Ohio Roots, the official podcast of the Ohio Genealogical Society. Join us as we embark on a captivating journey through Ohio's rich genealogy, history, and abundant resources. Hosted by me, OGS Executive Director Noel Poirier, this podcast brings you insightful conversations with a diverse array of guests, from OGS members, chapter leaders, and staff, to renowned genealogists, historians, and influential figures within the genealogical community. Each episode delves into fascinating topics and captivating stories. So grab your headphones, hit that play button, and join us on this enthralling journey of Ohio's roots. Our guest today is familiar to most people who uh, research genealogy, whether in Ohio or, or quite frankly, anywhere. Um, and we're really happy to have her on our first ever podcast. So this is great. Uh, her name is Sunny Jane Morton. She is known to Ohio audiences as the past editor of Ohio Genealogy News, which she did for 10 years. She's also a longtime contributing editor at Family Tree Magazine and the content manager over at Diane Southard's Your DNA Guide website. She's co-author of How to Find Your Family History in U.S. Church Records, available at genealogical.com or on Amazon, and will be teaching at the Genealogical Research Institute of Pittsburgh in July 2024 on the topic of U.S. Church Records. We talk brick walls, we talk our shared dislike for microfilm, how much we love seeing dogs and pictures, and so much more. So settle in, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, Sonny. Thanks for joining us today on Ohio Roots. I appreciate you taking the time out to be with us today. Absolutely, no. I'm glad to be here. I, you know, I'm a longtime lover and fan and supporter of the Ohio Genealogical Society. Well, thank you very much, and and I'm very, I'm one of the lucky people who had a chance to see you actually present in person. Um, so, if anybody who's listening hasn't had a chance to do that, they really want to take an opportunity to do that. And I promise, I won't ask you to sing a song or do anything like that <laughs> during this podcast. Although it's a great song, I think uh, my opinion was it was a great talk and a great song. Um, one of the questions I always talk to people about genealogy, whether it's at the Ohio Genealogical Society Library or conferences or meetings, I'm curious personally as to what it is that gets somebody really interested in pursuing genealogy or family history. Um, I know everybody's got their own angle or their own story, so I think I'd love to hear what yours is. Well, I have to say that, you know, I grew up in a history-loving household. You know, when other kids went right. to Disneyland during the summer, we went and toured cemeteries. Oh, you poor we, went, <laughs> we went and visited families, and we went and visited our relatives, which was mm -hmm. a great thing. So I heard lots of relative conversations, but, you know, we'd stop at courthouses and libraries. One of my very youngest memories is of being in a library somewhere in Missouri, and my mom, it's the middle of the summer, it's hot outside, everybody's outside playing or inside enjoying the air conditioning, and my mom sits me down at a library library table with this enormous book and she opens it and these it's these old newspaper pages and she's like you're going to sit here and read this newspaper for about an hour and you're looking for the mention of this name and I'm like are you even kidding me <laughs> <laughs> so, you know I've come a long way in my right. love for reading old newspapers since then but that is one of my earliest memories and of you know jumping out of the way of snakes at old cemeteries with the sun beating down on nice. you trying to find the you know the name of a certain person that I didn't know anything about so <laughs> I did grow up in this and maybe because of and in spite of all of this background I do have a degree in history and I've always been most interested in the micro version of history what right. was going on sure. in their individual lives, in their family's life, down the street, that kind of looking at that close, that zoom lens of history. Right. But I have to say, I wasn't really interested in tracing my own family tree 
until I got married and started having kids. And even then it wasn't mine. It was my husband's because his was a blank slate. Nobody knew anything. Hmm. So it was all raw, fresh discovery that I got to make from the very Hmm. beginning of these generations. I feel like that's what really hooked me is the ability to make these discoveries completely on my own. I think anybody who's heard you give a talk can hear that you have that historian mindset when you come to it. Yes, um, I do I, come and, at, and as, yeah, and as I come a fellow historian, I know I really appreciate the storytelling. You know, I, my experience has been the best genealogists are the best storytellers. And, and I think you're an excellent storyteller when you're giving a talk. In all that research, either of your husband's family or yours, did you ever find kind of a little nugget, a little family story that either surprised you or was just unique to your family that really kind of, it's a story you tell to everybody when you run into them? Well, I do have a few stories that come up in a lot of my presentations because they're just really fun stories. And this is, again, going to be on my husband's line. His lines took me back to um, the little borough of Oliphant, Pennsylvania, in Lackawanna County. And um, it sounds like you're familiar with that area, um, to an immigrant family from the uh, what's now Slovakia, 1880s, 1890s. And we have this family settling in, um, helping to build, we think, the local Catholic church, their own national parish, so a Slovakian parish. And then he joins the Slovakian baseball team, the Slovakian firefighting unit. And he joins the firefighters as a volunteer, first of all, but eventually he becomes their full-time driver. And you can tell from all the records that this is the pride of his life. And then one thing that really becomes even more amazing is that he trains a dog. And this dog hits the newspapers and becomes viral. Like I've traced him in newspapers all over the country, uh, reports of this firefighting dog who's ascending ladders and descending ladders with a doll in its mouth because it's (laughs) been trained to rescue a human and pull them out of a fire. And uh, to the point where there's even a newsreel clip on YouTube we found showing the dog in action. (laughs) So yes, that is a, in fact, I have an 18 year old son who says his favorite ancestor is chief the fire dog (laughs) that's a great story i mean whenever i'm at ogs and i have to publish something for social media or something i'm always looking through the ohio photograph collection for any image that has a dog in it oh people love it children and dogs or Or cars cars. when i was the editor of the ohio genealogy news uh quarterly that goes out um one of the the cover photos that got the most attention was an old car because somebody wrote in to say what kind of car is it what's the model (laughs) and my husband who's a car guy did the research on that and we were able to kind of go back and forth and learn more about the car and that that kind of thing sparks conversations too so you're right a dog or a car (laughs) (laughs) you can't go wrong with those no Uh when you do your genealogy i mean i enjoy doing the research like i just like digging into the research and and for some people that's not something they enjoy. Are there aspects of of the process that you really embrace? And are there aspects of the process that you just find onerous? Yes, absolutely. So, and one will involve a confession that will probably come back to bite me at some point. So that's, you know, that's very possible. So I can passionately easily answer the answer, the question of what 
kinds of um, what kinds of aspects appeal to me the most, and that's the right. research process. Send okay. me down a rabbit hole, mm -hmm. that something that sounds intriguing, like oh, that's a good question. I wonder what was going on here. I wonder right. why this, and I wonder what kind of record would tell me the answer. So that to me is just as appealing as figuring sure. out where I would go to find an answer. So absolutely, the research rabbit hole is it's my favorite, and it's really hard to come back out. I, I see that with a lot of people, it's hard to come out of the research rabbit hole long mm -hmm. enough to, to document and write down what you've discovered right, right, and to yeah. share with other people. Um, I don't mind the writing process, but the part that I particularly dislike, I just, three little words, I hate microfilm. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I remember when you had to use the old microfilm readers in, in the archive and you'd be just zipping through them really fast because you knew you need to get somewhere and then you'd stop and then your eyes would just go weird. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, I've, so I, I've think, never, I think you're not yeah. alone there. I've never had really strong vision. Um, it's hard to read the readers. You have to sit in a dark room to do it. Right. I don't like the dark. I, I just, yeah. there's so much about microfilm readers that is so unrewarding for me and trying to capture a clear, sharp image. Right. Once you've found something that you think you know what it says, somehow yeah. the sharpest you get, it still looks a little fuzzy. So even, and I, I know that most of the images that I look at, at online at my favorite genealogy websites, I know they're microfilmed images that have been rendered digital, but somehow I'm more okay with those ones. Right. Yeah. I, I wonder if it's because you can blow them up and you can, you can scale them a little bit. You can clean them up if you need to. I know I, I have, a, I'll use Photoshop every now and then to clean up uh, an old microfilmed image yep. that, that's come across. So, so that makes it a little bit easier, but, but you, but you make a good point too, though, in a sense, in that um, there are times when you have to physically go somewhere. <laughs> Yes. And, and look through microfilm and, and look through there, uh, there still yeah. are occasions where what you want is only available right. on microfilm and yeah. and i have to admit that i will go to great lengths to not have to look at those sometimes <laughs> I, I, clearly if that's where i have to go to get the answers that i want i'm gonna do it but yeah. it's certainly not my first choice yeah, I, I do a whole program for ogs on doing on researching house histories without ever having to leave your house yes <laughs> uh, you know just and occasionally you have to tell somebody well for that record you're really going to have to go to the courthouse you know, yeah. to find that you're just going to have to leave the house, but you don't have to do it for everything. You know, I'm fine with leaving the house. I love right. the courthouses. I love the big volumes. I love, you know, mm -hmm. pulling out those great big books and looking through those old dusty files. I do love the tangible parts sure. of that. Uh, it's the microfilm. <laughs> just the microfilm. It's yeah. just the microfilm. It's just the medium that somehow. So, so I'd imagine you hate microfiche yeah. even worse. You know. You don't have to scroll it, That's so true. maybe it's not quite as bad. But okay. um, it I, microfiche somehow amazes me. Like, how do they get right. all that stuff in that little tiny, tiny, it's, tiny? It's space? very, it's very James Bond like. Yeah, I have to. Yeah. I do have to say that I, I have to say I would prefer microfiche over film. Okay, all right, well, good. I've heard you speak on a number of different subjects, but do you feel like there there's an area that you really specialize in that you feel is, is really kind of your sweet spot or, or do you consider yourself more of a generalist or, or, or how do you, how do you feel about the way you approach it? Oh, okay. So I would have to say that as far as my topics of choice, I am interested in the last 200 years of my family okay. history. I mean, if it happened before then, it doesn't really emotionally connect with me. Okay. Sure. Except for something like a homeland identity. And for, for most of the branches of my family, I have to dig really deep to get outside of the United States okay. and to find that homeland identity. And that matters to me. 
Like, yeah. I do want to know that even though it's really far back, sure. I want to know the places that my people came from outside of the United States. Um, but I, within the United States, because almost all of the branches of my family have been here for so long, I just really love all of the record sets that we've managed to create over time. And um, within the last couple hundred years, there are amazing records that are more available to mm -hmm. us. We kind of think of privacy restrictions uh, in this, these first generations or two that sometimes restrict us from finding what right. we want. But in the last 120 years, there are so many other kinds of records that are not privacy restricted that can really open a window. So mm -hmm. I would have to say that relatively recent, okay. uh, the United States, deep and interesting record types, the more obscure the record type, the more interesting I think it is. And I teach a lot, like what, what you mentioned earlier with storytelling, mm -hmm. I teach a lot of storytelling skills because there are so many gifted researchers <laughs> who can't tell a good story right. and their, their beautiful discoveries and their passion for it and everything gets a little bit lost in translation. Yeah. And it makes me so sad because their relatives' eyes glaze over even their good friends eyes glaze over even their genealogy group eyes glaze over yeah. because it's there they struggle to tell a good story so that's one of the tips that i'm going to bring for later in the, okay. the podcast yeah. Yeah. is we're going to talk a little bit about okay. storytelling tips well and, and there's no question that part of that probably comes from your historian background of storytelling um because that's what we do as historians but i the last thing i saw you speak was at the ogs conference at kalahari in april and you did a wonderful speech or wonderful lecture or talk um, about the Ohio River and, and and moving down the Ohio River, which I thought was was excellent. Was that an area that you just kind of fell into, or is that is that your people's root? That is my people's root. Yeah. One of the stories that I told there was my people. Um, but I also I, I love historical transportation of all kinds, okay. and I'll just have to push up my glasses for those of you <laughs> who can't see me doing that, as I admit this particular brand of nerdiness. If I can find a historical mode of transportation that I can get on, I will do it. If it's mm -hmm. a canal boat, if it's a um, if it's a steam train, if it's a horse and buggy, if it's right. a Model T, I, all of those. I've a steamboat. I've, I've written all of those things, and so the idea of going down the Ohio River at five and a half miles an hour in the kind of boat that my like that's that's one of my dream experiences that I haven't gotten to have yet because I've not found somebody with a flat boat who wants to put <laughs> me on it um, I hope anyone listening who has yeah. a flat boat that goes down the Ohio River I'll there's got to be I'll, somebody there's got to be somebody out there so um that's just is I the kind of the ways that people traveled and the experiences that they had when they traveled were so different right than what we like both different and the same. I mean, I can still go five or six miles an hour down the river and see things unfold the way they did, but I see something different. I see a, a region that's built up. I see um, a river that's well controlled by the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, I'm used to traveling at much higher speeds. So to me, it's very slow. Whereas my ancestors would have seen this and said, wow, boy, we're moving along at a rapid pace and we don't even have to do anything yeah. except steer. Wow, this is amazing. Right. Yeah, That's what yeah. they would have seen. And they so their experience in some ways is universal to mine, but in other ways, it would have been completely different. The Ohio Roots podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Genealogical Society, the premier gateway for discovering your Ohio family history. To learn more about joining, visit www.ogs.org. You know, it's interesting you bring up how different it is, because in many ways, I mean, I live in, in New Philadelphia, Ohio. 
And in the early 1900s, you could get on a train in New Philadelphia, Ohio in the morning that would take you to Cleveland, where you could take in a show, do some shopping and be home in New Philadelphia by the evening time. Um, or you could get on an inner urban trolley that would take you from New Philadelphia to Canton, to downtown Canton, where you could go shopping and do whatever you wanted and be back the same day. Those don't exist anymore. You know, those, those very interesting modes of getting where we needed people needed to go around the state just don't exist anymore. And it's kind of sad. <laughs> it is kind of sad. And I would love to jump on an inner urban. I would love to right. jump on a, and it, you know, even in our country, in the United States, we don't have well-developed rail systems. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's not a mode of transportation. That's really, you know, um, it's, it's interesting. Many of us know very well. I grew up on the East Coast, so disclaimer: I'm not an Ohioan. Uh, and where where we, I rode the train into Philadelphia or New York City all the time. So you know, when I when I get out here and I'm like, I want to go to Pittsburgh. Oh, that's an hour and a half drive. Or I want to go to Cleveland. Oh, that's an hour and a half drive. I can't just get on a train and be kind of dropped off in downtown Pittsburgh or downtown Philadelphia or downtown Cleveland. It's kind of a shame. I and and also what I think I love about those early transportation stories is how many of our ancestors got hit by trains. This is true. There were a lot more, there were a lot more train wrecks and yeah. derailments and things like that. So yeah, there, there are a lot of these um, transportation fatalities as well. Yeah. Travel was, was fraught. I mean, there yeah. still are today, but right. not nearly as many, thank goodness. But yes, travel was really fraught and dangerous back then. When you, when you're doing either your husband's or your own family, um, you know, we all hit these brick wall ancestors that are tough to kind of push through. Do you have a particular brick wall uh, person that you managed to, to, to kind of break through and, 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 and bring to life. I have a fresh one for you. Oh, like this better. is a recent brick wall. Okay. So, and I'm going to just get a little bit passionate about it. Okay. If that's okay. So it's a pretty, so it's a recent discovery and it's a fairly recent brick wall. I've told you, I like the last 200 years or so, and I spend mm -hmm. a lot of time in the, during that time frame. So as brick walls go, this is a, like an 1890 census induced brick wall okay. with an orphanage and wow. disappearing parents and a mystery nun. So like, this is a good brick wall. It's yeah. one I really like. So the source of my interest was a man named Henry Fox. He was born about 1890 in Colorado. I worked backward from his adult life. That's how we always do it, right? Or almost always we find out about the end of their lives and we work backward. So he died in 1961. So I had a ways to push back to his death date. And I was able to, you know, document his adulthood, not so much his childhood. So I had to kind of leap over that to find his parents' marriage record and then their divorce record when he was eight. And then his parents just disappeared. So this is just before the 1890 census, or just around that time. And by 1900, the trail gets cold. Henry mm. disappears from records himself until adulthood. What happened to him? What happened to his parents? What happened to his childhood? I can see from the divorce record that he was his parents' only child. His mom, Mary, is the one who defiled for the divorce from his dad, Mike, and she got full custody of Henry because um, Mike was apparently a jerk. He had skipped town a long time before. Apparently, he had run off to Cleveland, which is funny, oh. back, to, back to my neck of the woods, but he disappears into a big city with lots of Fox families. I haven't really been able to confidently identify him, so I focused really on Mary, and the divorce record tells us that Mary was in such poor health that she couldn't work or even pay the court costs. She was living with her sister there in Pueblo, Colorado, but they didn't name the sister. She and Henry were living there. So I kind of lose, the trail kind of goes cold there. Does she die? She's in such poor health. Does she die? But here's the thing. 
Henry's obituary in 1961 tells me that one of his parents remarried or at least had more kids because it says that he is the brother of Sister Mary Bertilla of Waterloo, Iowa, a woman religious, a nun. Hmm. So not her real name, like her right, birth name. Right. It is her real name. It's just not her birth name. So hmm. that doesn't help me identify where does the sister sister come from? You know, is she on the dad's side or on the mom's side? Um, if I could find her, I could probably at least find the parent that she shared with Henry and figure out what happened to at least some of his family and the rest of his childhood. So I at least got, um, I decided I would follow Mary's trail uh, just because Mike Fox was such a, you know, such a, a common name and he disappeared and skipped town. Chances are if Mary survived, she's the one who would have produced another child that would have stayed in touch with Henry enough for her to appear in his obituary. So I, I focused on her. I did know her parents' names from her Catholic church marriage record. So, Noel, I think that's a really good tip for people is that sometimes we just get a civil record, right, vital right. record. And sometimes if there is a corresponding church record, it's going to tell you more. Yeah, yeah. And in this case, the Colorado archives uh, sent me the both the marriage and the divorce records, no parents' names on them, but the Catholic marriage record did have her parents' names on them. Uh-huh. And so I find her dad living with another of his daughters, not Mary, and his son-in-law in the 1900 census right there in Pueblo. There is a boy named Henry living with them who's yeah. listed as a son to the couple. He's the right, right age. But it turns out that it really was their son. Yeah. I was able to track him in other records. Yeah, so yeah. what happened to Henry? What happened to his mom? I come back to Sister Mary. Mary Bertilla. So I started contacting religious orders that were active in Waterloo, Iowa during that time. And that's the thing with uh, women religious and with these uh, orders that they belong to is that they have a different record trail than just the diocese or the parish. So, um, and they're, they're real, there's so many of them with all with very different names and uh, different archives. So I struck out for a while. But then I found Henry's work record that talks about his next of kin. It mentions a half-sister named Hmm. Lena George, who was living at Sacred Heart Orphanage right there in Pueblo. So a younger sister, if she's still in an orphanage. So I did go find the orphanage records. I did find her in the census. And she's appearing on the census with a Mary George who's two years older. Wait Hmm. a minute. Is this like another sister? another half sister. I don't know. So I stay focused on Lena. That's a, you know, one of those, you have to choose your rabbit holes carefully. Right. right. right? So I stay focused on Lena. I went back to all those religious orders again, and I, I Googled her with a vengeance. I finally find a find a grave memorial for a sister, Mary Bertilla, Helen. So Lena, George, mm-hmm in Waterloo, Iowa, with a fabulous obituary attached, which leads me finally to the right religious order, the Institute of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So they have her biography, they have her parents' names, Mary Ironman was her was the mom, (laughs) so this is the right woman, and the stepdad for Henry, Dominic George. So I do find the dad, I find uh, her birthplace, I find a biography, I find her career history. They send me pictures of her and quotations from oral histories about her. Wow, great. So um, at least now I know what happened to Mary. She married this guy, George. I I still don't know what happened to the two of them as a couple eventually, but I've at least been able to put together this step family because both of those women were his half-sister. Wow. Um, So she, this Mary Bertilla, 
raised in a Catholic orphanage, you know, question mark there. What happened to the second marriage if the two daughters ended up in an orphanage? Um, But at least I'm able to just reunite Henry with With, um, post-mortem, with a post-mortem reunion on the tree uh, with, uh, with his sisters and his stepdad. That sounds like a, a fun brick wall to break through. Super fun said, brick wall. And, and you said that was pretty, and you said that was just recently then. So yes, it was a recent breakthrough just in the past few months of finally wow. putting the, all having all those pieces yeah. come to come together like that. Yeah, that, but that's that's great. I I don't have I have I don't do enough genealogy to have brick walls because I get lazy. But um, <laughs> but I one of my recent ones was I didn't my nobody in my family realized that my great grandfather had been married before. <laughs> Uh, he married my great grandmother, and he had had kids before, so I was able to help my family find them. That was my only—I wouldn't call it a brick wall as much as it was something my family didn't know and didn't. I don't know if they were even interested in knowing, to be honest with you, at that point. But to reconstruct recent roots, even if they're yeah. second cousins, third cousins—I mean, right. that's meaningful. Like yeah. that—that's good. Good work. For me, for me, it was—it was—it was meaningful because I had inherited a lot of photographs from my grandmother and my mother. And my great grandfather showed up in these photographs with this woman and this child who I had no, nobody knew who they were. So there, I have pictures of them together. Um, but, and I would ask, who, who's this? Who's this with, with, with him? And he's like, oh, we don't know who that is. Well, or they knew and they didn't want to know. I don't know. Um, you mentioned earlier, you, you gave a little piece of advice during your, your brick wall, which I, which was good. And you mentioned earlier about having a good piece of advice for folks who are doing genealogical research on their families. What advice do you have for them? So if you're just getting started, I'll get to your storytelling tips here in a minute. But if you're just getting started, I think my two pieces of advice that are the most important are, first Mm -hmm. of all, to have fun with it. And second of all, your third great grandparents aren't going anywhere. Those records will always be there. Uh, Start with the living. Um, Start with those connections uh, that are most recent and that are rich with the oldest living generation. Talk to them, listen to their stories, the ones they want to tell you, not the ones you want to pry out of them. Uh, So listen respectfully, value them, have them show you pictures and who's in the picture, what was happening in the picture, what do you remember from it, and get them to take a DNA test if they will. So capture what you can from the living. And it's not just about mining them for information but about valuing them for who they are yeah if you if so you have those people yeah, if you have those people still around in your life you're incredibly lucky yes uh, you, you are know, and you should take advantage of that uh, you know many of us listening are the oldest living generation and so this kinds of falls on regretful ears for those who didn't necessarily <laughs> do that or who came to this hobby when they were the oldest living generation yeah, yeah. right and a lot of us do um, but look around, there still may be somebody from a past generation whose uh, story and life you could really benefit from knowing about. So that's what I, the advice I would give to the beginners. That's great advice. Thank you. So what are your tips for storytelling, Sonny? All right. So I think the most important storytelling tips are to recognize that a story is different than a life most people's lives aren't neatly shaped into stories, right? right? They're not. And if you start the, the story of someone's life with this person was born, like you're already boring, right? So <laughs> sure. find the stories within the story, the, that lifetime. So a story arc has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So some sort of question or drama or theme that pushes the storyline along. Right. So you have to figure out what are the interesting bits in the story, turn them into a digestible narrative, 
Uh, so with a little bit of a plot line and some interesting characters, and then remember enough of those divine details to confidently spit them out in a natural right. way when you're telling right. the story. And don't get hung up on the boring details. Right. I watch people start to tell a great story, and then they're like, wait a minute, was that in the census or was that in her mom's <laughs> marriage record? And then you kind of get... Right. And the, you lose the whole thread of it. So, yeah. you know, you need to know your audience. Are they up to a three-minute story, a 15-minute story, the 30-minute version with where you talk about all the record discoveries? So you need to know what kinds of aspects of the story will be interesting to them. So as I was telling you the story about Henry Fox and Lena George, I was talking to you and other genealogists. So I right. could say things about the lost 1890 census and records sure. and uh, finding the, the religious records and things like that. But if I was telling that story to a non-genealogy audience, I would completely leave all that stuff out. I would just focus on the story itself and probably the mysterious sister Mary Bertilla would become the main character because she's so sure. interesting. And there's this theme of disconnecting and reconnecting to your family. What would it have been like to be separated from your parents and your brother as a young girl living in an orphanage with your sister, but knowing you have these other relatives on the outside and then living this life where you take holy orders and you live away from your birth family. But maybe in a sense, she never really left home. If she had mm -hmm. been raised in an orphanage around right. other religious and this... She, you know, maybe she considered that her home. Right, right. And then many years later, her brother's obituary claims her as his only surviving relative. And suddenly she's recast back into the role of birth sister. Right. And it's her identity that reconnects Henry from me to the rest of his family. So you, you kind of find the themes and the larger things that make the story meaningful. What's the so what factor? Why does right, the story right. matter? Why does the person matter to you? So what's coming up for Sonny Morton in the next few months? Oh, my goodness. So um, the National Genealogically... National Genealogical Society and the Genealogical Research Institute of Pittsburgh have just announced the uh, GRIP Institute courses for next summer 2024. And NGS is involved in this because they've just acquired GRIP. Uh, so the jointly, they'll be launching that. And I've been asked to teach in 2024. Oh, excellent. So that's, uh, you know, a, still a year away, uh, but I'll be teaching a week-long class on uh, using U.S. church records. So this story about the nice. nun, I'm, it's, I'm sure it's going to be fitting. part of one of these lectures for sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. That'll be the 14th through the 19th of July in 2024 in person at right. LaRoche University in Pennsylvania. So just outside of Pittsburgh. And um, this is coming from my work as the author of How to Find Your Family History in U.S. Church Records, A Genealogist's Guide, which has been a really popular book the last few years. It's the only thing out there quite like it. And it really helps people dig into these lesser known records for uh, finding your family history in the U.S. Right. So well, I'll, I'll be working on that over the next year. I'll okay. be developing all the materials for that. We'll make sure we have a link to the book uh, on the website when we post the podcast. Wonderful. Thank you well, so well, much. Sonny, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with all of us today. And, and, and thanks again. Absolutely, Noel. Thanks for having me. Appreciate everything you do for us. Well, that was a lot of fun speaking with Sonny Morton today. Um, Sonny is a wonderful presenter, a great storyteller, great genealogist, great historian. If you ever get a chance to see Sonny in person, don't ever hesitate to do it because you will not be disappointed. So I want to thank Sonny again for joining us today on the Ohio Roots podcast. And we'll see you next time.
The Ohio Roots Podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Genealogical Society, the premier gateway for discovering your Ohio family history. Hosted by OGS Executive Director Noel Poyer and edited by Luke Poyer. Theme song is Beautiful Ohio, recorded by Bob Stanley and his orchestra in 1944. To learn more about joining the Ohio Genealogical Society, visit www.ogs.org.